All right, guys, let, let me just pray quickly before we, before we start. Father, we want to just take a moment to thank you for, just for this great story. The allegory of our lives in comparison to his is just remarkable in, in so many ways, with regard to the context in which we live, the circumstances of the world, the challenges of broken walls in our lives, other people's lives, nationally, physically, wherever. Um, and as we look at the principles of rebuilding broken walls, I pray, Lord, that as we draw this to a conclusion right now, that you would be pleased with what you see taking place. Help us, Lord, inspire us to be all that you would want for us to be at this time in history. We know you, we're here for such a time as this, and I pray that that would come through in our study today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Guys, I want to say thank you to Watercliffe Church for, for having me at this conference. It's been a wonderful experience, albeit online. I wish I could be there personally. But just thank you for allowing me just the privilege of being able to talk to you by this. I want to say a particular thank you to my man Ethan down here, who has done all the technological side for us. He's a good kid, and he's certainly brilliant at what he does. I hope that you have seen that as well. We talk about Nehemiah. And uh, we're coming now to the third of our talks. This should actually, I think, in fact, be the fourth, and I'll explain why, because uh, we only have three weeks, so we've got to clinch it today. So far, we've spoken about the issue of broken walls from the point of view of the problem. Why were the walls broken? Probably mainly through neglect or through somebody left the darn gate open, or maybe a war happened, they came in and flattened it. We've spoken about the passion of Nehemiah's heart out of the brokenness of his heart, Nehemiah is inspired by the Spirit of God to take on this enormous task and this responsibility. We've done the, the talk on his prayer, the passion of the prayer. We spoke yesterday, or last week, in fact, about the plan, the program that needs to begin in our minds. God never uses anybody with a defeatist, negative attitude. He's got to change that first before he can begin to use us. We spoke about the preparation of our minds and of the preparation of our hands and the purging of our hearts that need to be prepared. We spoke about the promise that God had given to or must have given to Nehemiah for him to be so absolutely confident that the task would be fulfilled. Now, if you read the rest of the story, you'll notice that there are a couple of other things that we have to leave out. We haven't spoken about the persecution factor. That whenever somebody rises up to do something really good, Satan rises up as well. And he says, what can I do to bring him down? And so Satan came in various forms and shapes to Nehemiah with blatant persecution, with, with physical threats, with emotional baggage, and trying to stop Nehemiah from doing what God wanted him to do. And then we clinch that thing. We're talking about the progress of, of what took place here. How This was a 52-day exercise. That's serious progress. In 52 days, that's a supernatural act of God, the walls were rebuilt. We wouldn't be able to do that today, even with the most modern of technology. So we should talk about that sometime. But today I want to read how it all ends. It ends with a party. Today we want to talk about not just the persecution, we'll mention that, not just about the progress, but I want to read to you what happened at the very end, and then we'll wind this thing up. This is what it says. This is chapter 12, uh, and I want to read to you just verse 27 and then one other. Um, remember that this is the first of the phases 
Nehemiah is basically a book with two stories. The first one is the rebuilding of the walls. The second one is the reforms of Nehemiah to keep the walls standing. But today we come to the end of phase one, and this is the party that took place. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages all around the place. And then verse 33, And then on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far, far away. You see, at the end of this incredible story, it ends so beautifully with the party. Now, today what I would like to do is to take the story and make some personal applications to the things that we have been speaking about. As much as it's a story, and it's a great story, and it's a true story of a person, his life, and everything he did, it's also an application for our own lives to be able to look at his story and say, can I compare my life with his story? Indeed, you can. That's why we're looking for principles. That's why we're looking for pictures and parallels as we preach Old Testament stuff. Now, in this personal application, let me begin by saying this, and I'm being blatantly honest here. I think for many Christians, their Christian lives has been basically a disappointing experience. Many Christians have been lulled into their Christian faith being like a deathbed theology. Become a Christian so that when you die, you go to heaven. And that's all they become Christians for. They don't realize that there is a purpose here on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To be a part of God's kingdom on earth, doing what God has called us to do, to restore his kingdom here on earth. And so many of us have fallen for this deadbed, deathbed theology. And as a result, we've come, become bored. We've developed some seriously bad habits in churches today of negativity and pessimism and infighting and comparisons and, and all of those ugly things that happen when churches look inward instead of outward. And we, we realize that the church is probably in jeopardy. It's safe because it's God's agent. It will always be there. But the church needs to get more to, than this deathbed theology. So my thesis today is simply this, and you will hear me say it a number of times, that the blessing of God is always on the other side of the line. Now, you know, when, when we were kids, we, or we teach our kids that, that the grass isn't greener on the other side. I've got to say, that's not true. As I look publicly, I see the grass is always greener on the other side. Have a look at Moses in Egypt. And God said to Moses, take the children of Israel out of Egypt because the grass is greener in the promised land. You've got to cross the line to go there. Have a look at Peter giving out the boat. Why did he get out the boat? It was so comfortable in the boat. Even though the storm was raging, all his buddies were there. Everybody was naysaying on him saying, stay where you are, Peter. Don't go anywhere. But Peter crossed the line because he knew the blessing was on the other side of the edge of the boat. Walking on water was far better than drowning with his friends. The blessing was on the other side of the line. So the grass is greener, biblically. For instance, death. We always think that death is an awful thing. No, death is not awful at all. Let me tell you, the grass is greener on the other side of death. When we get to heaven one day, we will see the beauty of the green grass on the other side of the line of the bar 
that to us looks so ominous. The grass is indeed greener on the other side. Here's another thought. You know, when, you, when you're teaching your kid how to color a picture, and the kid comes with this thing and he got a color, what do, we, what do we always say to kids? We tell them to color inside the line. You know? And then teachers will mark his picture according to how well he stays inside the line. Well, with great respect to teachers and teaching them you know, how to color a picture, that's what Satan would want for you to think. Stay inside the line. You know, and I'll determine where that line is, and you stay inside the line, and I'll make sure that there's comfort and there's no challenge, and you're going to be fine inside the line. People, the church is desperately in need of right now stepping outside of the line, the blessings on the other side of that line, and to color outside of the rules that maybe Satan has put upon you to keep you where he wants you to be. Listen, people, the blessing is always on the other side of the line. Now, Nehemiah's story is a great illustration of this principle. It's kind of like a three-scene play. Have you noticed that the first scene we see Nehemiah in a place of great comfort, security. He was the cupbearer to the king. He was important. He had authority. He was a he was a well-known person. He probably lived in the palace of the king of Persia. And, and he was indeed in a very comfortable place. That's scene one. And then scene two, we see him being challenged by his brother Kahanani coming. And he moves out of the comfort of where he was into the wilderness of getting to Jerusalem. It was a dangerous journey. There were bad guys along the road that wanted to rip him off. So he took some soldiers with him that the king had given, and he entered into the journey to get from where he was, the place of comfort, to the place of challenge where God wanted him to be. He had to go through that period, kind of like Moses. Before Moses could get to the promised land, he had to go through the wilderness and the dryness and the barrenness in order to get where God wanted him to be. And then he gets to Jerusalem, and we've done the story. He motivates the people and the people come, they rebuild the wall, and they culminate the whole thing with that great party. And Nehemiah realized that the blessing of God is always on the other side of the line. Now, this line between Persia, where he was, and Jerusalem in its restored state, was looking like a few things to Nehemiah. It depends where you stand. You see, if you stood on the Persian or the wilderness side of Jerusalem in its restored state, that place looked like three things. First of all, it looked like the land of the unknown. Nehemiah had never been there before. There were no road maps. He found his way to Jerusalem, and on his way there he's thinking, I've never been to this place before. I don't know what, what Jerusalem is like. I don't know what it's meant to be like. I've never been there before. Let me tell you, people, if you are going to be used of God, you're going to need to go into the land of the unknown. You've never been there before. And God said that to Joshua when Joshua had crossed the Jordan River into the promised land. He said, Joshua, you've never been there before. It's the land of the unknown, but here's my promise to you that I will lead you and I will guide you in that particular land. And so the question as you're crossing the line of the unknown into the land of the unknown is, what's going to happen? Well, the answer to that question is, we just don't know. We don't know what is going to happen. There's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about to be thrown into the fire. And the king says to them, if you guys will just bow to my statue, they will know what can happen, and I can protect you, and I can... And they said, no, we'd rather go into the land of the unknown. And we know that our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, it's still okay. 
You see, the, the, the currency that we operate in the land of the unknown is in the currency of the realm of faith. The currency in the land of, of comfort is just money and its prestige and its popularity and its power. You cross that line and you lose all of that stuff and now you have to learn what it means to trust God. Now, Hebrews says that without faith it is impossible to please God. It doesn't say it's difficult to please God. He says it's impossible to please God. So that means that you can have all the religious activity in the world. You can sing all the songs and pray all the prayers and at the end of the day, when you stand before God, He's going to say, you sang the songs really good, you prayed the prayers really nicely, but you missed the point. You missed the point completely. In the land of the unknown, it's all about faith. So you could have all of that religious activity, and if you don't have faith, you have nothing. The first thing that land would have looked like would have been the land of the unknown, never been there before. Same thing for us. The second thing, that that land is going to look like to you, it's going to look like the land of the impossible. When he got there, Nehemiah surveyed the walls, and he would have looked at those walls, and he would have said, man, this is a big job. How am I going to do this thing? This looks impossible. And on the basis of his own human ability, he probably would have thought, let me just get on my donkey and go home. This looks impossible. Kind of like when the spies went into the promised land, and under Moses' order, and they came back, and out of the 12 spies, 10 of them said, Moses, the land is awesome. It's everything you said it was. But the only problem is we can't have it because giants live in the land. And Joshua and Caleb said, but God has told us we could do this thing. And that was not a very popular concept to the people then. They actually wanted to stone them. But God will never, like we said last week, God will never ask you to do what you can't do. Because if you could do it, then you would get the glory. But when you do something that God can, only God can do, then obviously God is the one who's going to get the glory. You may get a little bit of credit for holding up the stick or throwing the stone, as Moses and David did. You can get some credit. But at the end of the day, God will get the glory. You see, God only wants you to do what He tells you to do. He's not mean. He's not playing a game. He's not gloating over the fact that you may fail. God will only ever ask you to do what you can do because He says He will do the rest. I guess this is where we talk about Satan's voice into our lives. When God tells us what to do, there's always this counter voice of saying, what's going to happen? You can't do that. Did you hear God right? Is this really what God wants you to do? And that is really the voice of the enemy. And when we look at the voice of the enemy, we see how Satan can come in so many different shapes and forms. Listen to a few. First of all, Satan can come as a roaring lion. We know that. We see that in Afghanistan right now and around the world, where the roaring lion is seeking to whom he may devour. The roaring lion is easy to see. He's easy to recognize. And when you see the roaring lion, the wisest thing to do is just run. The roaring lion of Satan. The second thing he can come is as a snake, like in the... Like in the the subtlety of what took place in the Garden of Eden. And the snake will come and he will never tell you you didn't hear that. He will just sow like a little seed of doubt to say, yes, did God really say that? Are you really sure that God told you to do this, Nehemiah? Are you sure that God's not saying just pray for them? Don't recall. Just tell some people about what's going on over there. And he sows those little seeds of doubt like a snake in the garden. Then he could come as a wolf in sheep's clothing. 
where he looks like from a distance, he looks like the real deal. But when you get close to him, you realize he's just faking it. And that Satan will come to you like that. But the worst of all is he comes to you as an angel of light, we read. Satan can come to you looking like he's the answer to your prayer. That's, I think, is the most subtle and the most dangerous of all of them. And he will put these thoughts in your minds that this is not what it really is and not really what God wants you to be. He creates like virtual fences. Those of you who, who know the story, I, I heard it on the, the radio one day. Uh, down in Gordon's Bay in the Cape, they have a problem with these big baboons that come into the town. And they cannot get rid of these baboons. They're not allowed to shoot them. They've tried building fences. They've tried putting all sorts of different things to try and keep the baboons out of Gordon's Bay. But they are trashing the town. They're upturning the, the dustbins. They're fighting with the dogs. They're invading the homes. They don't know what to do about this problem of baboons in Gordon's Bay. Until some kid, sounded like I interviewed the kid. He was about, sounded like he was about 17 or 18 years old. He came up with an idea. He does this. He takes a big loudspeaker and he positions them out on the outskirts of Gordon's Bay and he faces them up into the mountains and he plays the sound of a roaring lion going up into the mountains and the sound of this roaring lion reverberates through the hills and the mountains around and you all know that if there's one thing that baboons do not like it is lions. And he's created this virtual fence between the baboons and Gordon's Bay. No baboon is bold enough to come into Gordon's Bay right now because they think they've imported lions into the city. And he's answered, probably albeit temporarily, he's answered the problem by creating a virtual fence. That's what Satan likes to do with you. He'll roar at you. He'll make you fearful. And he will create a virtual fence that does not exist at all. It's just a seed of doubt. It's just a virtual thing to keep you on that side of the line. So be aware of the tactics of Satan. The next thing that we want to talk about is the land of the impossible, the land of the unknown. And it's also the land of no positive feedback. I don't know, you know, whenever anybody wants to go and walk in the land of faith, people don't, don't very often get very keen on doing the same thing. They don't get positive with that person. If you want to get across the line, you're going to find a lot of people who want to keep you on the other side. Like Peter, when he wanted to get out of the boat, and he's trying to get out the boat, and the disciples are saying, so Peter, where are you going? Peter, there's a storm, the wind, the lightning, the rain. Peter, stay in the boat. And Peter says, no, no, I'm too bored. I need to walk. I need to get out. I need to trust Jesus. I want to walk on the water. But the, out of the 12 disciples, probably 11 of them are saying, Peter, don't go. It's comfortable where we are. We're used to this, Peter. This is what we're used to. Please, Peter, 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 don't walk on water because you'll make the rest of us feel really bad and inadequate if you walk on water. Peter, just stay in the boat. If any of you have ever tried this within the church that you're in, you, you're, and I say with great respect to the people in the church, they would rather stay comfortable than respond to the challenge to get out of the boat and to walk on the water. People are not going to get popular, or you're not going to be popular with the people should you wish to cross this line. I love the story in Matthew 20 of Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus is a blind man, and he hears that Jesus is in town. And so he begins to cry out to Jesus, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon me. 
And Jesus hears the cry of faith amidst the whole of the crowd. And he says to his disciples, somebody is calling me. And they say, Jesus, listen, everybody's calling you. Everybody wants a piece of you. What do you mean? But I think Jesus is saying there's somebody crying out with a cry of faith. And so he finds blind Bartimaeus. He says, Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, Jesus, I really would like to see. You see, I want to get to the other side of the line. And all the other people around say, Bartimaeus, just be quiet. Bartimaeus, Jesus hasn't got time for you. You're just a blind man. You've been sitting at this gate forever. Jesus wants to talk to important people like us. And they would have been very negative. And we read how Bartimaeus didn't take it. He continued. He shouted even louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He didn't listen to the crowd. If he listened to the crowd, he would never have been healed. So people of faith are not popular very often. So the land where you want to go, the land on the other side of the line is going to look like the land of the unknown, the land of the impossible, and most certainly the land of not much positive feedback. So that's a, that's a bleak picture of the other side of the line. You've got to say now, what is it that's going to motivate you to cross the line? Well, the first thing you're going to be motivated to do when you do cross the line is you're going to be motivated to trust God because you can't trust anybody else. You're going to be motivated to, to trust Him because if He doesn't come through for you, you are dead. And we look at this and we say, well, man, what does it mean? Well, have a look at Scripture, people, and you'll see anybody who was ever anybody in Scripture had to learn what it meant to trust God. This was the journey of Moses, every great spiritual leader. Moses, Moses, can you, can you open the reeds? He lift up your stick and Moses said, Lord, just lift my stick. Is that all I have to do? And God said, Moses, just trust me. God said, just lift your stick and just trust me. And whoa, he did that. And God did what only God could do. When he gets to the other side and the people are whining and they're negative and they're moaning four days after this, they've got no water. And so Moses says to God, God, what am I going to do? And God says, just trust me. Take that piece of stick from that branch of that tree and just throw it into the bitter water of Marah and the water will be healed. And Moses is saying, mm, is that all I have to do? And God said, no, it's not all you have to do. Throw the stick and then trust me. And then he comes up against the Amalekites. And these are, these are people who've come out of Egypt. They've got no weaponry. And they're fighting this very sophisticated fighting army force. And there's thousands of them. And God says to Moses, Moses, just trust me. You're going to be fine. And Moses said, Lord, what am I going to do? He says, you do two things. You tell Joshua to go down into the valley and fight them. And then you trust me. So people, you want to enter into this land, you're going to be motivated to trust God. I love this, this story. Maybe you have heard it of this uh, young wannabe preacher. He went to a, a conference, probably a big, maybe a Methodist denominational conference or something like that. And he's sitting in the front row. And over the course of the days, these great preachers are standing up and he, they're preaching. And man, these guys are brilliant. And this young man is sitting in the front row and he's taking notes and he's giving this is so cool. And then at tea time, the bishop comes down to the young man and says, Hey young man, you look so keen. You've been taking a lot of notes. You know, I've got a favor to ask. And the young man thought, no, maybe he wants a cup of tea. He wants me to get, I'm going to get him tea or something. And the, the bishop said to him, no, no, young man, what I want you to do is the next session after tea, the preacher who's due to preach that session can't make it. So I'm going to ask if you would like to preach that session. And the young man says, but uh, I've never preached to more than five people in my life. And then says, you know, the bishop says, it's fine, just trust God, you're going to be fine, just trust God. And the bishop walks off. 
The young man doesn't know what to do. So he walks up and down and he's looking for a Bible. He didn't bring a Bible. And he said he sees a Bible on the desk. So he picks up the Bible and he opens the Bible. And inside the Bible is a sermon. He reads the sermon. It's the coolest sermon. He says, man, I'm going to preach this sermon. So straight after tea, he stood up in the pulpit and he preached the sermon. And it was supposed to, it was actually the best sermon of the entire conference. Everybody applauded and slapped him on the back, gave him high five, said, man, it was a great sermon. Until he sees the bishop. The bishop is storming down the road at him with his face red and his eyes bulging. He says, young man, young man, you have just preached my sermon. And I have to preach now. Next after you, I have to preach. What am I going to do? You've just preached my sermon. And the young man smiles and he puts his hand on the bishop. He says, hey, bishop, just trust God, bishop. Trust God, bishop, you're going to be fine. And uh, it's so easy to say, is it not? Just trust God until the time comes that you have to trust God. The second thing you're going to be motivated to do if you cross the line, not just to trust God, but you're going to be motivated to pray. To pray. You know, I, I'm a pastor of a little church and, and uh, people often say to me, Trevor, you need to preach on prayer. Listen, people, I have preached my guts out on prayer. You know, we've run prayer seminars in our church. And I've got to tell you, I don't think the prayer life has gone up, you know, anything, especially over the course of time. It's not long before it's back where it was. And the crazy thing, I've preached about it, we've taught about it, we've pleaded with people to pray, and the prayer life doesn't even seem to do very much better. And you say, well, how do you get people to pray? Well, let me tell you how you get people to pray. It's very easy. You push them across this line. You push them into the land of the unknown, the land of the impossible, the land of no positive feedback. And I've got to tell you, those people are going to begin to pray without ceasing because they know that if God doesn't come through for them, they are dead in the water. We will pray without ceasing. We are on the other side of the line. If you have a look at Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat is up against a formidable army. He says, God, what do I do? And God says, just pray. Just pray. Don't have to get my army to go and fight. No, no, just pray and worship me. And as a result of the prayer and the worship and leading into the battlefield, Jehoshaphat was surprised by the hand of God who was able to do what, again, only God could do. So on the other side of the line, you'll be motivated, first of all, to trust God. Secondly, you're going to be motivated to pray. Thirdly, and lastly, you're going to be motivated to make a sacrifice. We said last week, there's no blessing without sacrifice. And if there is, it's because somebody has been sacrificing before you. The reason we are blessed is because Jesus made the sacrifice. The reason we get to heaven one day is because of the blessing of heaven is given because of the sacrifice of, of Jesus. There is always a need for sacrifice. The reason you will sacrifice, a couple of motivations... You will only sacrifice now if you can see something bigger tomorrow. We'll be willing to sacrifice the little that I have now if I know that I can have something bigger tomorrow. That's going to cause me to sacrifice. I look at the guys who come to our gym um, down here in Port Shepson and, and these guys, man, there's some huge guys there, enormous guys. And I, I look at them and I say, well, how did you get that big? How did you get those muscles and that toning so, so good? And you know what the answer is always through personal sacrifice. Every day, those guys get up, they do the same thing, they come to the gym, 
they do their workout. They sacrifice the sweets and the starches and the, the foods. They eat the right foods. They make huge sacrifices because in their mind they have a picture of what they want to look like. You will only sacrifice if you have a bigger picture in mind. That's why the church is in dire need of visionaries. People who come and paint a bigger picture of the impact that the church could make in the world around it. There's a wonderful illustration of this with Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is soon on his way to, his way to Jerusalem to the crucifixion. And he stops at his friend's house. And they're all in there. And a woman comes into the presence of Jesus, which was not a popular thing to do in that culture, which was just mainly dominated by men. And this woman walks in and she's carrying something. And she walks up to Jesus and all eyes are on her as she, as she walks up to Jesus and she breaks the bottle and she pours all this ointment all over Jesus and the aroma filled the entire room. And the disciples are standing back and they're looking at this and one of them says, probably, hey Jesus, you know, there's a better way to have done this. This was not the best thing that she could have done. She could have sold that, that, that perfume and we could have given the money to the poor. And Jesus may well have said, you know what? That probably would have been a better idea. It probably wasn't the best use of the, the ointment, but wasn't it beautiful? Wasn't it beautiful? You see, there's better, there's best, and there's beautiful sacrifice. And this woman made a beautiful sacrifice. Jesus said of her, what she has done is a beautiful act of sacrifice for me. And the story of this woman will be told for many generations to come. We are still telling the story today of the beauty of the sacrifice that that lady made on behalf of Jesus. Just this morning, my wife, Helene, she read me something that I thought was quite intriguing. She read me about the story about two epitaphs that were found in England. An epitaph is what is written on a gravestone. And in the one epitaph it says this, Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. And then they found another one in London. This is awesome. It's a beautiful picture of self-sacrifice. It says this, Sacred to the memory of General Charles George Gordon, who at all times and everywhere gave his strength to the weak, his substance to the poor, his sympathy to the suffering, and his heart to God. That's a great picture of what self-sacrifice is all about. So I guess at the end of the day, people who have heard these three talks that we've been doing, it all comes down to a choice that we need to be making. Are we going to stay on this side of the line with our deathbed theology and our, and our boredom and our ritualistic living? Or are we going to be bold enough to step across the line and serve a purpose for God? Like Esther did. Esther, Mordecai came to Esther in the palace and said to Esther, Esther, you, 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 you're living in such comfort. You've come out of the dregs of a squatter camp and now you're living in the comfort of, a, of this palace. Esther, I have a challenge for you. You can either stay and live in the comfort of this beautiful palace or you can step across the line out of your place of comfort and save the nation. 
And so Esther says, I need to pray about that. I don't think she prayed too long before she knew she had to make the sacrifice. She had to cross that line. She could have stayed in the comfort of where she was. She could. And churches out there, you can stay where you want to stay. You can stay in the comfort of where you are, live within the paradigm that you've always lived, live within the comfort of the finance that you know you can budget for, or you can step across the line into the land of the unknown, the land of the impossible, the land of no positive feedback. Be motivated to trust God. Be motivated to pray. Be motivated to make the sacrifice that is needed for the kingdom of God to be what it needs to be. My hope and my prayer is that you will do this and that as a church in Watercliffe, that you will look at yourselves as a church and that you look at yourselves as individuals and say, maybe God wants me to cross this line out of my comfort, out of my comfort of knowing and being able to measure and touch and see everything into the land where I have to live by faith, where I have to learn what it means to pray and to trust God, And you will find out that every one of you has a place for that. There's a place for you in the kingdom. They need you. The church needs you to be a part of what it needs to be, to lift up the community around, to address the issue of broken walls that corona and the violence have left us in. And I really hope that your church and my church and other churches will respond positively to that which I believe God is calling us to remember people. The blessing is always on the other side of the light. Thanks for having me. Let me just pray. Father, we acknowledge today our responsibility as believers. I think too many of us have fallen into that deathbed theology thing of just become a Christian so that when you die you can go to heaven. And as a result, we sit bored in the pews with no challenges, nothing to inspire us, just the religious ritual of one thing after another, after another, the same old, same old, all day long. That's not how it's meant to be. The Christian experience is meant to be exciting. The Christian experience is meant to be full of challenges and and inspirations and, and be pushing us into serving your kingdom to a greater depth and a greater degree. And we know today, God, as Moses found out, as Joshua found out, as Nehemiah found out, that the blessing is always on the other side of that line. Oh, how I pray that we would have the boldness and the courage to corporately, as well as individually, cross this line to become a blessing to the world around us. Lord, there's some things you can't do for us. We can't ask you to help us to do this thing because you're saying, I can't help you. You have to do this. And I pray that we'd be courageous in our response to that challenge from you today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again, folks, for having me in your conference. It's been wonderful to be a part of it. Thank you.